Reach Young Adult Ministry sermons online from Tuesday, July 30th, 2019 by Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, entitled Faithfulness from 1 Samuel 1 through 3. have your Bibles, turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to look at the first couple chapters of 1 Samuel. This is the first uh, lesson in a multi-part series. We're going to look at the entire book of 1 Samuel and um, what God did through the story of uh, this young man, Samuel, uh, who grows up to be uh, one of the most powerful prophets in the history of, of our faith. Um, and then looking at also Saul as he is proclaimed king and Dave, and David eventually uh, proclaimed as king as well. Um, but this is the first part of, of many uh, lessons in the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to take our time. We're going to go through as as uh, we can, and, and we're going to look at what God does as his story unfolds with his people. Uh, today we're going to look at two personalities. We're going to look at two people, essentially. The first is this woman named Hannah. Now Hannah is a woman who lives before the kings in uh, in ancient Israel. At this point in history, there is no temple, there's no central government. It, it's a loose conglomeration of twelve separate tribes who have split up land uh, across the across the um, the promised land that God has given them after they had conquered uh, from being released in Egypt. And so these twelve tribes are loosely connected, but the the primary connecting point that they have, though, is in their religion and their worship to God, Yahweh, uh, the God of their their forefather Abraham and his son Isaac and his and then his grandson uh, Jacob. And so the Israelites have this central faith, and the central faith is is symbolized within the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a uh, uh, a box of wood that had been covered in gold, and, and inside the Ark of the Covenant were, were different religious and holy artifacts, such as the, the tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain that had the Ten, Ten Commandments inscribed on them, or or um, uh, his brother Aaron's staff that budded in front of uh, in front of Pharaoh. Different things that God had done, uh, different items were placed inside the Ark, and so it personified their religion, it personified their worship of God, and so. The, the resting place for the Ark of the Covenant was this place called the Tabernacle. Now, the Tabernacle was the precursor to the Temple. The Temple, if you remember, uh, was originally constructed by Solomon, the son of David. Um, it was a massive building, and it was beautiful to behold. Um, but before the Temple was built, before God established kings over Israel, uh, there was uh, this central place called Shiloh. And Shiloh was a city... Uh, where the tabernacle, which was basically a cloth temple, like a tent, uh, uh, was constructed. It was put up, and the, and the Ark of the Covenant was placed there for its care. And so so uh, uh, one time a year, people would come to Shiloh. They would have a pilgrimage to Shiloh, and they would offer sacrifices for their sins and to make their hearts right before God. And so what we begin to see is that uh, as people come to Shiloh, we begin to see a, um, a narrative unfold, specifically in this family uh, between this man named Elkanah and his wife Hannah. Now Hannah is an interesting character. Hannah is a godly woman, and Elkanah is a godly man. And uh, what they have done is they they come every year uh, on a pilgrimage to offer their sacrifices. And Hannah, though, is distraught. She is upset. And the reason why she's upset is because she's barren. She's not able to conceive a child. Now, at this point in history, uh, for a woman, since they didn't have modern medicine and, and, and other things, 
uh, an abundance of children was considered a blessing from God. Scripture says that children, lives that have been created by God on purpose, uh, serve a purpose. And so um, back then, most people would, would try to have as many children as possible because many of them would die from disease or from from famine or for uh, for other reasons. And so um, typically a family would try to have as many children as possible, which is why you see um, some people abuse marriage and uh, and embrace things like polygamy. Uh, but Hannah was uh, was barren. She was not able to have any children, and so she carried this with her as a as a weight around her neck. And in fact, uh, Elkanah, her husband's other wife, uh, a woman named uh, Peninnah, she she hung this uh, even heavier around Hannah's neck. And so she would berate her, and she would accuse her, and she would tease her because she was not able to conceive and have a child. But Hannah, though, was consistently obedient, and she, she worshipped no matter how she felt. And so she had a quiet obedience about her. And she poured her heart out to God, and, and she begins to say, God, this, this one thing that I ask that you would bless me with a child, just one, one child, I don't even need any more, just give me one, just so I know that you hear me. And if you give me a child, I will give him over to you for service uh, in your temple. And so uh, she begins to pray these things. So we're going to look at Hannah and how she looks at her relationship with God. And then also uh, we're going to look at this man named Eli. Now Eli is an interesting character because Eli is the head of the tabernacle in Shiloh. And so Eli is all caught up in ministry. He's all caught up in his work. And he has neglected his individual walk with God and, and, and neglected his sacred responsibility to shepherd God's people. And as a result, what happens is that he has these two sons. These sons, one of them is named Hophni and the other is named, named uh, Phineas. And these two sons are incredibly abusive. They take their, their role as, as priests in the temple in the, or in the tabernacle and they use it for their own advantage. They, they steal food from uh, the, the animals that have been sacrificed to, uh, to, to God. They, they are sleeping with women that come to the, to the tabernacle for worship. They are abusing everything that they have been given charge over. And so Eli, um, as an example of unfaithfulness, uh, he begins to place his work, his station, over his his quiet obedience to the Lord, and so God steps in and He begins to uh, to offer judgment towards Eli. So we're going to look at this story. So if you have your Bibles, look over, uh, open up with me to First Samuel chapter one. We're going to read a few verses from chapter one and a few verses of chapter two. We're going to try to do both today. So we're going to move pretty quick, um, and we're going to do our best to make sure that we. Uh, we, we do ourselves a good service to the text. So the first thing I want you to write down if you're taking notes is that Hannah has a quiet obedience. Hannah has a quiet obedience and then she wanted a child. Look at what happens in uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 1 in the first seven verses. He says, There was a man from uh, from Ramathame Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave, gave portions to the, of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. 
Now, uh, one of the things that you've got to notice here is that that even though God had not heard Hannah's cry, her prayer, she still remained faithful. And the same thing with her husband, Elkanah. Like he, he also remained faithful to her and to what God was doing in her life. See, it's easy for us whenever we are praying for something that we that we desperately want to blame God and to be and to tell him that somehow he is late or he's not on time for what he is planning to do. And what we can learn here from from Hannah is that she's patient and that she waits. And even though it causes her great pain and sorrow, she does she remains faithful to God. Look at how it continues. So she's not eating. Look at verse uh, verse 8. It says Hannah why are you crying, her husband Elkanah would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now pause for a minute. He's saying, listen, baby, I, I love you. Isn't, isn't this enough? Don't you know that I love you? Uh, I love you so deeply, but aren't I worth more than all these other things that you could, that you could want? And, and, and look at how it moves on here in verse 9. On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. And the priest was sitting in a, in a chair. And the priest Eli was sitting in a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears, making a vow. She pleaded, "Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me, and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut." Now, what she's pro- what she's promising here is that her son Samuel would be what's called a, a Nazarite, okay? So a, a person who had taken the Nazarite vow, this is, uh, some other examples are like Elijah, the, 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 the prophet Elijah, or John the Baptist. These were people who dedicated, dedicated their lives to strict religious practices. They didn't eat certain things, they didn't, they didn't drink certain things, they didn't drink alcohol, anything that had been, uh, that had been um, fermented. They also didn't cut their hair. And so if you can imagine... These Nazarites were people who were dedicated severely to God's will and to and to seeking after what was the holiest thing that they could. And so what she's saying is that, God, if you will, uh, if you'll bless me, I'm going to dedicate my son completely to you. I'm going to give him up completely. And and she means it. She means that that when he is is born and if he is born, that he will be a man after God's own heart and he will be one who seeks after God's will first more than anything else. And so she she goes into this deep depression though. And so in, in that deep depression, she finally is like, you know what, I can't carry this anymore. And so she brings it to God and she, she lays herself down at the temple and she said at the tabernacle and she says, God, I can't carry this anymore. Please take this from me. And and the thing about it is that is that God follows through. Look at what happens here in verse 19. Okay, jump over to verse 19 in chapter 1. So he says, so it says, The next morning Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. Afterward they returned to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. When Elkanah and all his household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow before the offering before the Lord, Hannah did not go and explained to her husband, After the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear to the Lord's presence and stay out there permanently. Her husband Elkanah replied, Do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. 
And when she had weaned him, she took him with her, with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, a half bushel of flour, a clay jar of wine. Though the boy uh, was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. And then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. So God waits for her. He waits for her to come to the point to where she's going to hand things over to him. And he, he listens to her cry. And he follows through. And, and, and the thing about Hannah, though, is that it would have been really easy for her to answer God's, uh, to God's response and say, Oh, cool, now I've got this child. Oh, well, you know, I'm, I don't know. I really have a hard time leaving him by himself at the tabernacle. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just hold on to him for a little bit longer. When he's grown, then I'll dedicate him to the Lord. But she doesn't. She follows through because she understands that God is the only way that she's able to conceive this child. And so for, for us, what we can do is we can look at Hannah's example and we can say, okay, well, when I pray for something, when I earnestly pray for something and it burdens me and I finally give it over to God and He answers my prayer and He gives me the thing that I have been asking for all of this time, we have to be faithful and follow through because God is He's a keeper of promises. And if we are going to be Christ-like, if we're going to pursue Him and, and take on His attributes and live our lives as He does, that means that we need to follow through with what we promise as well. And so if you've made a promise to God, say, God, if you, if you give me this thing, I will do X, Y, or Z. The truth is that you're going to have to be obedient when that time comes. You're not going to be able to just say, oh, well, God, thanks for, for doing this, and, and go back on your word. That's not how this works. See, her curse became her reason for worship. It became something that God looked at her and he said, you know what, baby girl, I love you. And in response, she turned around and she says, God, I love you too. And she, and she followed through on what she said she was going to do. Okay, but look at what happens with her. Okay, so first, first Hannah, the, first this thing is held over her head, and she thinks that this is just crushing her. And there's no way that she can, uh, that she can overcome it until she finally gives it over to God. So once, he does, once she does, then God is faithful, and he follows through, and he gives her what she's asked for. And then she, in return, follows through and does what he asked of her. And the curse that she had been carrying now becomes her reason for worship. Look at what happens in, uh, in chapter 2. Look at this. It says, so Samuel is starting in, verse, starting in verse 18 of chapter 2. It says, Samuel served in the Lord's presence. This mere boy was dressed in a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she, when she went with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. May the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one she has given to the Lord. Then they would come home. The Lord paid attention to Hannah's need, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. See, she demonstrates her obedience not just a one-time thing, not just in a one-time thing by, by giving Samuel to the tabernacle to the service of God. She continually comes back and demonstrates obedience. Every time she comes back and she sees him, it becomes her reason to come and worship. She's not coming just to offer a sacrifice to, to ask God to forgive her of her sins. When she comes to the temple, she is coming to be reminded of God's faithfulness. And so she brings him clothes every year. She brings him a new robe as he grows. She's encouraging him in his purpose. She doesn't come and she says, Oh, well, sweetheart, one day you're going to come back and live with me. No, she doesn't. She stays committed to the calling that God's given her. And so every time that she would come to the tabernacle, she would come back to Shiloh to do worship. Her and her, and, and her husband 
Samuel would be waiting. He would be waiting for his mother and his father to come back and to hear the story again about how God is faithful and how God is true to his word. And her obedience, he ener- it energized her for worship and made, to make the annual trip to Shiloh a wonderful part of her life. She was rewarded for her obedience by having more children. She had five more children. And later, here's the thing. We're not going to get into this now, but in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, when Samuel is, is a grown man, he comes back to live in Ramah. After, after all of the craziness happens of him growing up in the tabernacle and serving, serving with God, God moves him back to Ramah, to his hometown, where his mother is. So her faithfulness, she didn't have to manipulate him. She didn't have to try to work her way around getting what she wanted. She trusted God and God was faithful. And the cherry on top, it's like God said, you know what, Hannah, I love you. And I'm going to let your boy come back and he's going to live next to you. And the sacrifice that you have, that you have made is going to be worth it. See, here's a key point here, is that God held back a miracle from Hannah until she was completely focused on him. God works according to His purposes and not our wants. See, it's easy for us to think that, that God is some sort of a, a magic eight ball that we've got to shake and, and, and He's going to give us the answer that we want. The truth is that God doesn't work that way. He doesn't, give, he doesn't easily be manipulated. God has one purpose, and that's for us to know Him. He wants us to know Him. That's why, we have, that's why we're doing all of this. And so for us, the important thing to take away from Hannah is that God is faithful. When, he, when we ask Him for something... And we promise him something and we come, we come to him and we, we give it up. God is faithful to demonstrate his love for us. And he shows us this. He talks about this in Romans, how, how God demonstrates his own love toward us. That and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, that he loves us so much that even in our brokenness, he is the one that takes the first step. He's the one that starts being faithful first. But we can draw strength from Hannah because we can see that she is quietly obedient to what God's called her to do. And she follows through, not just in a one-time event, but over and over and over again. As the years go by, and she sees her son Samuel grow, and she, and, and she brings his new brothers and sisters for him to be able to meet and enjoy. She then becomes this, this curse, this thing that was hanging over her head, that was so heavy, turns into her reason for worship, to be excited for what God's doing in her life. And other people around her catch it, and it's contagious. But Hannah is not the only thing in this story. We've also got to look at somebody else. We've got to look at Eli and what Eli's looking like, like what he, looking at Eli and, and what he does. So we've looked at Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, these men were bad people. They just were. They were, um, they were manipulating people. They were taking advantage of people as they came into the tabernacle. Look at what it says. We're looking at, at, uh, at chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Look at this. It says, Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the from the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat, meat fork while the meat was boiling and plunge it into the container, kettle, or cauldron, or cooking pot. The priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Now, let me pause for a second and explain this. Okay, so the process was that the people of Israel would come to the tabernacle 
and they would offer a sacrifice to God. Okay, so that sacrifice was either grain or it was a drink offering, uh, a, a wine or an oil, or they would also bring animals. They would sacrifice animals. And so the product of, the, of those sacrifices were, uh, were given to the priests to be able to live off of. So when the 12 tribes of Israel came into the promised land, 11 of them received an allotment of land. All of them except for the tribe of Levi were, uh, were given land. And so Levi's inheritance, according to God, was that they would be the ones who administered all of the holy things to the people of Israel. So they were the ones who were in charge of worship. They were the, the, the priests who had been set apart. And so the, the Levites, what they would do is they would have to live off of what uh, what the people of Israel would bring to the tabernacle. So in a lot of ways, this is what this is how we look at at ministry now in our churches, right? So people bring their offerings, uh, they bring their tithe to the church. The church then takes that offering and uses it to not only be able to administer benevolence and help to people who need it, but also it uh, it it serves as a resource to be able to have people in full time dedicated ministry. So when you write a tithe check, whenever you give money. To your church, whenever you whenever you lay your your envelope on the, in the the plate on a Sunday morning, or you give digitally, what you're doing is you are furthering God's kingdom uh, in an act of worship by allowing other people to serve as God has called them to do. See, see, this is this is the nature of what it means to be in ministry, to be in full time ministry as a pastor, and so as a result, those who have been given that responsibility, who who live that way. They have been given a responsibility to use that authority with honor. And so Hophni and Phineas, though, God is not happy. He's not happy with these two men because they're taking that, that, that uh, position and they're using it to abuse other people. And so the, one of the processes of getting, getting meat and, and going through all of this, this stuff is that um, in order for it to be fair, the meat had to be prepared a certain way. And so uh, as a part of the ritual for, for the Hebrew uh, way of life and worship. And so what they would do is they would, they would boil the meat. And so they would put these pieces of, of meat in a cauldron or a big pot or a kettle, and they would boil the meat until it was cooked. And so they would have this giant meat hook that had three hooks on it, and they would drop it down into the pot of water. And so when they, when they pulled it out, the meat would obviously stick to the hooks, and whatever was pulled out was that allotment for that priest and for their family. Well, Hophni and Phineas, what they were doing was they were saying, no, that's gross. I don't want that. I don't want boiled meat. What God has told us to do, that's not good enough for me. I want you to give me the best cut, and I don't want it boiled. I'm going to go put it on my grill. Okay, so look at what it says here. He continues on in, uh, in verse 15. Uh, and it says, uh, let me go back to verse 14. And plunged into the container, kettle, cauldron, or cooking pot. The priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the, to the one who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast, because I won't, accept it boiled, I won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If that person said to him, The fat must be burned first. In other words, if the person says, That's not how we do this. Uh, you can't take whatever you want for yourself. The servant would reply, No, I insist that you hand it over right now. If you don't, I will take it by force. So the servants of sin, so the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord, because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. So what we see here, though, is that these guys, Hophni and Phineas, 
their dad is the top dog. Their dad is the guy who's in charge. Okay, he's the he's in charge of the tabernacle, and they he knew he you know that that Eli knew his sons were this way, and in spite of continued reports of their sin, he continues uh, to to let them go. Now here's the thing about this, is that in Numbers chapter fifteen. Uh, the law is very specific about what priests can do and what it looks like to 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 serve in the tabernacle. Okay, so so Eli, their father, who's in charge of all this stuff, he he decides that he's going to turn a blind eye. So as a father, he's called to be present, right? So God's word says that that a father is supposed to be intentional with his children. So number one, he dismisses his responsibility to be present in, in the lives of his sons. As a servant of God, as a priest himself, he chose not to teach them to respect sacred things. Okay, we have a responsibility as pastors, as people who have been given uh, trust and given the responsibility of leading people, leading God's people, to, to teach them to respect sacred things. That hasn't been done. As a citizen of Israel, they, they, were, they were called to uh, keep things uh, pure in their lifestyle and how they, how they practice their life. And so as a citizen of Israel, he's not obedient because he undermines the cultural fabric of the nation by letting these guys come in and undermine the, the, the process of people uh, petitioning God for, uh, for their own individual relationships. So you have all this chaos happening in the tabernacle because he's not being obedient as a citizen of Israel. And then also, as a priest, he's, distra- he's distracting the people from what God, what God has called them to do. And he's causing them to stumble. So imagine there are other people who who their worship is getting in, this is getting in the way of their own worship. And so they're not able to do what God has called them to do because Eli is not being an obedient person. He is not being a God abider. He is so distracted by the business side of what he's doing that he's forgetting about the relationship side of just simple obedience. He he stands in, in, in stark contrast to Hannah. Now, we got to pause for a second. God is about to drop the hammer on Eli. And the challenge here is that Eli, though, there's no going back. There's no going back. This is when the prophet comes to Eli. He says, A man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord God says. Didn't I reveal myself to your forefathers' family when they were in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace? Out of all the tribes of Israel, I chose your house to be my priests, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave you for your forefathers' family all the, all the Israel fire offerings. Why then do you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. Therefore, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of Israel. I did say that your family and your forefathers' family would walk before me forever. But now, this is the Lord's declaration. No longer. For those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disgraced. Look, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your forefathers' house so that none in your family will reach old age. You will see distress in the place of worship in spite of all that is good in Israel, and no one in your family will ever again reach old age. Any man from your family I do not cut off from my altar will bring grief and sadness to you. All your descendants will die violently. This will be a sign that will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Both of them will die on the same day. Then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart, in my mind. 
I will establish a lasting dynasty for him. He will walk before my anointed one for all time. Anyone who is left in your family will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. He will say, please appoint me to some priestly office so I can have a piece of bread. God's word says, this, this, man, this man of God comes to Elon and he says, look, from the beginning when you were in Egypt, God said he was going to promise you that you would always walk before him. But not anymore. The, this prophet comes before Eli and he says, Look, you have so abused what God has given you and entrusted to you that I'm gonna, not only am I going to remove you from your position, but I'm going to make sure that your family doesn't exist after this. See, Eli and his sons have disrespected their heritage. One of the things that, that uh, I love about Pastor Michael is that he, he has these phrases that get caught, right? And... Um, he one of the things that he says often is that, is that we've got to be careful as followers of Jesus as pastors that we don't become overly familiar with the sacred. Eli and his sons had become entitled and they had become spoiled. They had taken God for granted. They had taken their positions for granted. And not only that, but in response, God tells them through this prophet that they will lose their status and Eli's bloodline will be destroyed. And God will replace them with a true priest who will serve him faithfully. He's talking about how God is going to punish Eli and his sons because of their pride, their public disobedience. They refuse to submit to their purpose. You see, you have Hannah on one side who, who is burdened. She has overcome and she wants, she wants God-sized solutions in her life. And so what she does is she brings that to God and she hands it over. And she's quietly faithful over the years and God rewards her openly. But then you have Eli and his sons who are, who are in a position where they should be able to hear God. They should, they're in a position of influence. And yet they throw it away for their own cheap reality. They, they, they throw it away for something that is, that is disposable. How dare we take something that is, that is divine, something that is holy, and we trade it for something as foolish as a full belly or sexual gratification? See, here's the thing about this, is that nothing is wasted on God. Is that Samuel, he grew up seeing the faithfulness of his mother and the faithfulness of his father, and he also grew up seeing the abuses of Eli and his sons. God modeled obedience for Samuel through his mother, and he, God used Eli's failure to teach his, his faithful priest about obedience. So when the time comes for Samuel to, to be a, a grown man and to be a priest, to be a follower of God, Samuel has, been, has seen firsthand what it means to be faithful and obedient to what God's called you to do. So he takes that as a necessary piece of his life. See, everyone's been given a portion of influence with other people. How we obey will directly affect those who see us. We will neither draw them closer to God or we'll drive them away. So what does all this mean? Obedience is a lifestyle. I want you to see that, that, that it's not a one-time event. We are called to take up our crosses daily, not just once. All the things that we face in life are meant to point us toward God. If we reject that purpose, God will not give us what we want. It's like, it, it's like if, you, if you try to hold on to what God has given you with a tight, closed fist. Yeah, you, you might be able to hold on to what you have, but if you open your hand to, clear, to, to, to freely be able to give away what God has given you, just like Hannah did, God is free 
to, to fill your hand with so much more. But if you keep that hand closed tightly, you will never see anything more than what you have in your grasp. As I was going through uh, the process of coming into ministry and, and, and being obedient to the call uh, to come into full-time ministry, I sat in my, uh, in my desk. I used to work for the U.S. House of Representatives. The guy that I used to work for uh, is now in charge of NASA. And um, when he left Congress, when he was appointed by President Trump to, to, to run NASA, uh, congressional staff in an in a office like that are left behind and, until, they're, until they're moved over. And so he asked me if I wanted to go with him to Washington, D.C. and move to, to work at NASA. And I told him no uh, because, let's just be honest, I'm not that smart. Um, my wife said, what would you actually do? And, uh, you know, I speak human. Not everybody can speak human. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, he was uh, when he was when he was uh, when he left Congress to go work at NASA. Uh, the rest of the congressional office was left here in Tulsa, and uh, at that time, uh, we weren't allowed to do anything. We weren't allowed to go anywhere or have meetings or anything like that. And so my job working for his office was outreach primarily. So I would go to go to lunches. I would go to meetings. I would have coffee with people. Uh, basically, kind of like a sales job, and. Um, after he left office, there was no reason to do that anymore. And so my workload got drastically cut back. And so I was actually told by our chief of staff that I wasn't able to go have meetings anymore. And so I began to sit at my desk and pray about what God wanted me to do with my life. And for five months, I sat there. Um, and you can imagine what it's like to be uh, in the same place over and over again every day for five months uh, with nothing to do. There were no phone calls. There were no emails. There were no meetings. There was nothing. I just literally sat at my desk and read books and watched Netflix, which was awesome for the first week. But in the process, though, God gave me a verse, and it has become very prominent in my life. Last year was the year of trust for us. And God gave me Psalm 37, 3 and 4, and it says this. It says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, in those in that verse, in those verses, there are there are four things that that God has taught me about obedience. The first is to trust in the Lord, just like Hannah did. Trust that God is going to take care of me, no matter what my needs are, whether I understand them or not. God is going to take care of me. The second thing is to do good, to be diligent where I am, no matter if God is is answering my prayer or not. I need to be diligent where I am. I'm going to trust in the Lord and I'm going to do good. The second thing, I'm going to dwell in the land. I'm going to be content even when I want something so badly. When I think that God has promised me something and He hasn't showed up yet, I am going to be content because He is faithful. He is trustworthy. And He will diligently do what's good. And the last thing is to feed on His faithfulness. See, this whole idea of feeding on God's faithfulness is summed up by, by Hannah's life after she gave up Samuel. She has these five other children, and she can look back and she can see God's hand move in her life. She can see that testimony, and it gives her strength. This is what it means to feed on God's faithfulness. When Jesus says that we're supposed to feed on His body, feed on His blood, and we're supposed to feed on His testimony, it's, it's a metaphor, right? He's saying, look, your relationship with God, your history with God, His faithfulness should be something that, that gives you sustenance. It gives you strength. It gives you power. So when we look back on our lives, we can see God's faithfulness over and over again, and we can draw strength from that in the uncertainty of the moment. So if you're struggling with obedience right now, if God's told you that you have, that, that you have something you need to give up, I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you to give it up. 
And when, when the time comes when he's faithful and he shows up and he gives you the thing that you're praying for, I want you to faithfully look him in the eye and say, God, thank you for this. I'm going to follow through with my side of what I promised. Understand that, that obedience is a lifestyle. It's not a one-time event. We do this daily. And if we do it right, God will change our lives. What's up, everybody? This is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday evening at 6.30 at Evergreen Church, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. For more information, check out our website, reachtulsa.org. You can connect with us on social media and on Instagram by searching for reach.tulsa. Also, be sure to subscribe to our content for the latest sermons and updates. You can also find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Bring your glory down Come fill your people With revival